Welcome to the Practical Church Revitalization Podcast. We look at revitalization in real time, examining the ups and downs of revitalizing and replanting historic and legacy churches throughout New England and the U.S. Now here's your hosts. And welcome back to the Practical Church Revitalization Podcast. I am your host, Don McKinnon, pastor of Legacy Church in Sutton, Massachusetts. And with me is the one and only, my beautiful other half. Natalie, it's good to be back. Alright, so on this podcast, um, we're going to do a little bit of housekeeping, but um, if you're tuning in, uh, this is an interview with Dr. David Jackson, who, if I get this right, I know he he does this himself in the interview. Um <laughs> But he is the, um, he works for Replant in, with NAM, and he is the East Region Specialist for Church Revitalization and Replanting. And uh, we interviewed him. He is a, well, you'll hear this, uh, he was a mentor of mine while I was doing my um, revitalization practicums for uh, seminary. And uh, he was up here. Uh, doing session a session with uh, Dr. Gary Moritz, who is the revital revitalization and replant specialist for the Baptist Convention of New England, and uh, I talked with Dave and asked him if he would um, give us an interview, which he did. He, mm-hmm. So Natalie and I gave his, uh, interviewed him yep. on the Saturday after uh, the, the the annual the meeting. meeting. Right. So uh, that was good. It was good. It was good. Yeah. Well, you enjoyed it because you got to go I went get some to Chinese the, um, get the, I what? I almost said Chinese food. You got to have some cheesecake at the Cheesecake Factory. Well, that was afterwards when we went to lunch with Dave. But um, what, what breakouts did you go to? I'll, well, I did, I did the revitalization one which Dave and, and Gary did. And then afterwards, I went to do the um, fundraising one, which was not what I thought it would be. So. Yeah. Um, and when you went to that one, I had gone to Reaching the Next Generation. Um, yeah, the Next yeah. Gen one. Yeah, the Next Gen one, uh, working with teenagers in college-age ministry. How was that? It was really good. Um, I think it's Anne. I can't remember her last name, but I know it's Anne that works with the teens in the BCNE. Um, and then I also did the first breakout group that I did when you went to the revitalization one was uh, Children with Special Needs, which was taught by Sandy, yes. which was excellent. I, I mean, I knew some of the stuff. Um, it started as a very small group, <laughs> then slowly other people trickled in. But um, it was something that I was very passionate about, and we I was able to share. Uh, we have a couple families here that have children with special needs and the things that we're trying to incorporate in with them. And I think one of the... She she gave us a brochure that had, like, different heart fact statistics. Mm-hmm. And I think out of all the statistics, um, the one that was most shocking was... 90% of families of children with special needs do not attend church. Oh, wow. And I was like, what? 
I was like, that is a sad statistic. That sounds like an episode to happen. You know, that sounds like a good Well, topic. we probably could get into a very good discussion at another time about that, but it just kind of, um, kind of opened my eyes, and, like, mainly it's because families either feel that they're going to be judged, or mm. they don't feel comfortable, or they feel ashamed, or they just, the church, you know, they might like the church, but the church that they want to attend doesn't meet the needs of their right. particular child, right. so. But it was a good breakout group. I was able to come back and share the information with my team. That is good. I, I know um, I went to the revitalization one, and that one got to be the first session. That was the first session, and that got to be standing room only. Um, there was, I want to say, close <laughs> to 40, maybe more, in that first breakout session. And then the uh, I, from what Dave said... And then said, they repeated it. Yeah, yeah. they repeat, repeated it, and from what Dave and Gary shared with me, um, they had about equal... In so this. what's one thing that you took away from that group that you didn't know before? Um, oh, I have my notes somewhere. Um, <laughs> uh, like, put me on the spot. Yeah. Like, um, I would say there was there was a statistic um about pastors, like a lot of pastors. Uh, oh man, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I know I know there was like. A thing where it's like 80% of the churches in revitalization do, um, just don't realize it, and they wait until it's too late. And the other, uh, the other statistic, it had to do with pastors, and I, you can't remember. I can't remember. It's in my notes. I, I wrote some notes down. Yeah. But it was, it was something, you know, where yeah. where it was really kind of. Right. But anyway. Um, so then I went to the fundraising one, and like I said, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I thought it would be something where this is how you uh, look for partnerships, yeah, look for partnerships and everything. And it was really about um, like if members of your church are older, you know, how they can how they can uh, leave a portion of their um, finances, yeah, estate to the church. And I mean, it was good, but I don't know if I would have called it fundraising. I would have probably put it in some kind of other cause, category yeah because I know I know a lot of churches like older churches in in Massachusetts have that kind of institutional uh, thing you know there's kind of a financial giving right. but right. so but it wasn't bad and of course we had a good we had a good convention we have uh, two uh, we have a new president and vice president uh, the vice president, our listeners will know, because a couple of weeks ago we had um, Uliar de Sor's uh, message from the pastor's encouragement dinner, mm -hmm. um, where uh, he, he spoke and he was voted in as vice president, and a good friend of ours, Stephen Woodard, was uh, voted in as president after serving as vice president last year. And uh, so it was a really good, really good time, mm -hmm. and uh, made some new friends, some new connections. Yes, in fact, uh, looks like I might be putting together some kind of revitalization cohort with uh, Gary and Dave's uh, permission and help, so to speak, because a couple of the guys that were there, 
you know, uh, they wanted to connect with me, and, and so uh, we'll see, you know, where God's leading that. So anyway, without further ado, um, we will now bring you into the interview. The interview will start. Um, I begin it, and that's it. So I don't think we have anything else. Well, the only thing, other thing that I was going to say was how I'm starting the women's Bible study in January. Ah, uh, yes. Um, our women's ministry meets once a month on a Saturday, but it's only once a month, and after much prayer um, and talking to the ladies and realizing what their needs are, um, I decided to start a weekly Bible study uh, during the week, more so for maybe mothers or people that can't come out on Saturday or working Saturday. So it would be a one-hour Bible study during the week, started in January every single week. Right. And, oh, my other, my part of housekeeping. Um, if you're listening, I know I know uh, our, our listener, Curtis, and uh, Randall Curtis in Rhode Island is probably noticing this. Uh, my chair. Your chair nice doesn't squeak. Because, Yay! Because I got a new chair. But anyway... Without further ado, here's our interview with Dr. David Jackson. Okay, so you've probably already heard Natalie and I introduce ourselves, and I've already said that we have a guest. I probably already even mentioned the guest, but uh, because this is us in the past, and you've probably heard us in the future, and I'm not going to get real meta with that. Um, but anyway, uh, so our interview for this week, we are here with David Jackson, uh, Dr. David Jackson of the North American Mission Board. Who's, well, I'll let him uh, tell you what he does and everything, but uh, David has been a friend of mine for several years now and mentored me uh, as a revitalizer since I got to Legacy Church. And um, even uh, most recently, he was my field mentor for a couple of my practiums at Midwestern. And so I've gotten to know David real well, and I wanted him to be here and uh, share his wisdom. But without further ado, Dave, would you please tell the audience who you are and what you do and a little bit about your revitalization background? Sure, be glad to do that, Don. Natalie, thank you for letting me be a part of this uh, podcast today. It's good to be with you face to face instead of over a distance at this point. Um, yeah, so my my ministry. I've been in ministry for forty two years since I was ordained as a minister. I know I don't look that old. I, please tell me I don't look that old. I don't look that old. Thank you very much. Um, but uh, it's kind of been a sandwich ministry. And but what I mean by that is the early years of my ministry were involved in revitalization and replanting the latter years have been involved in that. In between, it was all church planting. Yeah. And I got called into church planting, did about 30 years of church planting. But on the front end of the, the ministry, I was involved in revitalization, did some teaching in school as well. And uh, the last couple of years, been working as a field team leader, a replant specialist with our replant team at the North American Mission Board, headed by Mark Clifton. You probably know that name. Uh, Bob Bigford and a number of other colleagues that are involved, even in podcasts like Jimbo Stewart and Kyle mm -hmm. Beerman and such like that. And uh, so I work with those guys, and my responsibility is the East Region, which is from South Carolina to Maine. Now, that's a big region, as you know, and uh, it actually goes into the country as far as Ohio. 
So I cover a number of states uh, and state conventions in Southern Baptist life, uh, trying to respond or be responsive to churches that recognize they're dying or are at risk of dying in the next five years. That's where we put our primary emphasis on those particular churches that are ready to respond to those kind of needs. Now, personally, I replanted a church in Maine um, and uh, it got down to seven people when I was called and worked with that church, Main Street Baptist Church in Brunswick, and got it up to about 65. We had baptisms the last week I was there before we handed it off to a new pastor. That pastor stayed for almost 30 years in that church after I left and uh, took it to be the largest Southern Baptist Church in the state of Maine at the time. It's not now at this point. Uh, this, this is obviously many years later. But uh, during his ministry, it uh, had great success. So very thankful for that ministry. A couple of revitalizations I was involved in early in my ministry. I was involved in one that was in a rural setting, which was so not me. I just want you guys to know, uh, everybody listening out there, I am not a country guy. Um, I grew up in the suburbs and have been in cities many of much of my life. But um, when I was in college, I had a college professor came to me in Bible uh, course. He was the head of the department and said, uh, we got this country church over here. It really needs a, a, a college boy to be the pastor. Will you consider going over there and helping him out? So I did. <laughs> it was an alerting experience for me. I want to tell you, the town was only 297 people. That's how small this country town was. It is really rural. Um, And almost everybody in the church was related to each other, as you can imagine. Um, So that was also a a learning experience for me to learn how family systems impact church life. But we did see some growth. We saw some baptisms while I was there. I think when I first went, it was about 20 in attendance. We had it up to 52 during what we would have called revival services in that time, about Average about 35 when I left. Um, so, you know, that's modest success, I suppose. Uh, but seeing the baptisms, my first baptisms I'd ever performed were in that church. It was really a wonderful experience out in the river, actually, um, <laughs> which is much more common, I guess, in a country setting. When I moved to Los Angeles, I pastored a church in a very urban area. And uh, as you can imagine, right out of East LA, which is a very multicultural uh, community. There, that church was running about 60 in attendance when I was there. We added up to about 110 before I left. And uh, not only did we see baptisms in that church experience in Monterey Park, which is just next to East L.A., abuts East L.A., um, where, by the way, where Erwin McManus uh, pastored his church, uh, oh, was the church of Brady that became, under Erwin's leadership, Mosaic Church. Um, but uh, they were probably the closest Southern Baptist church to us. Uh, in in Monterey Park at First Southern Baptist Church of Monterey Park. <laughs> How's that for a name? Oh my That's goodness! That is but it is a mouthful. But we uh, we were able to to see churches planted out of our church. We were able to send missionaries to the International Mission Board, um, as well as us eventually leaving to become part of the foreign uh, the Home Mission Board at the time. Not the North American Mission Board, it would be called today, uh, as we headed back across the country. That was the last ministry that we had before we. Uh, moved uh, this way toward uh, the Boston area as church planters. So we've got a mixed uh, set of experiences in uh, in revitalization and replanting, and then a number of years in church planting. So I will confess to your audience as well as to you guys today that when I deal with revitalization and replanting today, I can't help but see it through the lens of church planting. 
and thinking that one of the things that a lot of revitalization situations need to do is get back to what they did at first. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, um, in Revelation 2.5, Jesus is talking to the church at Ephesus, and he reminds them they need to repent, they need to remember, and they need to get back to what they did at first. Yeah. yeah. And so that kind of colors my conversation. You'll, you'll probably hear that as we work our way through it today. But I think simple is better. I think way too many churches are way too complex, and that's part of what bogs them down and slows them down, the bureaucracy of the complexity. Um, and I think, again, they get away from the things that they should focus on, like prayer, evangelism, disciple-making. You know, they get caught up in all this other stuff that's yep. good, but it's not best. And that's part of the problem. So. Yeah, you say that, and I'm, I'm thinking, like, you know, our, our debate at Legacy has been, you know, what what of the past do we bring back and mm-hmm. what of the past do we leave behind? Mm-hmm. And overwhelmingly, because we've we've gone out into the community, we've talked to the community and said, what are some of the things you remember about the church mm-hmm. doing in the past that was right. good for the community? They've said, you know, the overwhelming thing was the um, covered dish dinners. And yep. so now we're in the process. We've got a food permit, and we're in the process of bringing that back next year. Mm-hmm. So, well, that's good. Well, I think you have to look behind uh, or beyond the programmatic response. Like even covered <coughs> dish dinner, what's so good about that? It it provide it provides a, an opportunity for fellowship and community. That's what's needed right. in church life. It's not necessary that you have to bring a dish to make that happen. But it helps facilitate it in Baptist life for sure, right? Yeah, <laughs> we all know that about Baptist potlucks and such. So if it works because it promotes the thing that causes people to stick to each other as a body of Christ, then that's a good thing. And it can actually be an invitation uh, to newcomers to come and join us uh, mm-hmm. in, a, in a very informal, casual way yeah. where their defenses are down and you're able to build relationship, which again yeah. is something so new important. churches do. Yeah. New churches have to spend a lot of time on relationship building because they basically start from scratch where nobody knows anybody. Yeah. You've got to build relationships. So right. if covered dishes are doing that, then that's great. Whatever it is in your community, that's what you ought to be doing to build those yeah. relationships, yeah. to reach it's out. No you know, cutter. and I, I say this to revitalization churches too, and this is something else I learned in church planning. Um, church, church, churches that need to be revitalized often are worried about getting people to come into their building, but I think they should worry more about getting their people out of the building. That's right, yeah. into the community. Yeah. That's what, when a church doesn't have a building, like a church plant, it has to be in the community. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, oftentimes once you get one, people just want to kind of like a couch potato. They're a church potato, right? A pew yeah. potato. They, they want to stay in the building, uh, in their seat, and make the people come to them. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, I have a good friend, Mark Conrad, and his, his, his thing, no matter what, whether it's churches he's pastored or churches he's... He's attending as a regular. He, he wants to get out in the community yeah. yep. and, and get people into a relationship to know right. who he is. And, and Well, that's it. Right. You've got to get out in the community to build those relationships. And obviously that gives you an opportunity to help meet needs through outreach and things like that. And as you find those people, as the spirit moves on their hearts, they're responsive. Then you can start building disciples. Right. And mm-hmm. that's what we're called to do. Make disciples, right? Jesus right. builds his church. We make disciples. That's that's the mandate for us. There's a quote. I can't remember who said it. 
says it, but it says people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yep. And that, to me, That's just true. sums up church revitalization and yep. Know, and Natalie, can I say that in the, the COVID era, I think that's more important than ever. And here's the reason I think that. Because COVID has introduced every church to the fact that I can watch all the big name pastors online. Yep. Yep. When, we, when we all had to close down, if they were interested in church, they would search. And if our church wasn't ready, and a lot of revitalized churches weren't ready to have online services, they would find a church that was ready. And what they've realized in that process of the last 18 months or so is that I can listen to anybody in the world if I want to. I don't have to listen to my pastor. I can listen to the biggest name, best preachers that are in existence on the planet today. But what those pastors cannot do for people is they cannot provide the care that you talked about. They cannot love people. They cannot pray with people. They cannot be there in their moments of crisis. They cannot marry them, bury them, visit them in the hospital, yep. you know, just take the pastoral care element is what is so critical right now, because most of our people, if they're not back at church already, it's because of fear. Yep. And what do they need? They need a pastor who cares for them that can help them. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. See, they have to be reminded that God's with them. And the pastor and his wife are often the personification of that for them. They are the constant reminder. God does care. God is here. God offers hope. And no matter what they go through, we're walking along. That's right. Yeah. Nothing can replace that. No online will ever replace that. Yeah. So this is huge. You've got to make more of it even now. Yeah. One one of the things, and I'm I'm giving her all the credit because she was the one that came up with it, was when the pandemic started we had families that were like we had one family that had lost the husband and father and the one thing we started doing because she she spearheaded it was what we call now porch drops where we were going to the different families and dropping off something uh, a gift or a bag or whatever and just letting them know we're still here we love you and you know, and it, it works, you know. Well, again, I'm going to go back to Revelation 2.5, the repent, remember, and do the things you did at first. And I'm going to add the emphasis on the remember part. Don't forget that. Mm-hmm. Remember that you did that, and it made a difference then. It will be very easy when everything gets back to normal, whatever that new normal is, to stop doing it. But people love the touch of knowing my pastor and his wife are thinking about me. They're caring for me. That, that reminds me they're praying for me. That reminds me that I have a hope and a future, that God has not abandoned me. He is sending people into my life, like my pastor and his wife, that yeah, will help absolutely. me take the next step in my journey toward yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, um, actually, I just realized that was his first question. All right, you, you, can take, you can take the second question now. Okay. All right, the second question is, when should a church seek revitalization? Well, um, our team uh, at the North American Mission Board has actually uh, done a little research on this, and we really think there are like three basic windows in the life of a church when they can do this pretty effectively. Um, 
if you can visualize this with me for just a second, I know you guys can do that better than me because you can see my hand gestures, but I'm just <laughs> yeah. mean, if, if those that are listening to us can visualize a bell curve, you know, that goes up toward a mountaintop and then comes back down the other side. Most churches in the first 15 to 20 years of their life are like going up a mountain. And it, it accelerates with momentum, the growth and the development, the, the uh, incline uh, is always very positive. But then at the sum, summit, they kind of plateau. I mean, obviously you can see the horizon at that point. And if you and I are climbing a mountain, we probably want to stay there a little while. Well, churches kind of want to stay there when they get up to the top of the, the zenith of their pro mm -hmm. uh, of progress. They, they enjoy it up there because things are going good. Everything's kind of humming. Um, but if they don't, if they don't recognize the fact that we've kind of slowed down, we've kind of stalled, we've kind of stopped to enjoy the view, they can get stuck there. They get too comfortable. That's exactly right. And so I'm going to say to you right now, that's one of the best places to revitalize. But most of them, first of all, they don't want, they don't know it. And second of all, they don't want to admit it. Because they, they recognize that if you're saying we need to revitalize, we need to do something new, but we like what we're doing right now. And it seems to be all working. But the plateau is an area where you don't grow, by technical definition, you don't grow more than 5% on an annual basis. You don't decline more than 5% on an annual basis. So you're just kind of stuck there. And you'll, you'll have a down year and you'll say, hmm, that's not too good. We need to watch that. But the next year, you may grow by 2%, and all of a sudden, you feel like, oh, everything's okay again. But it's just 2%. Right. So you're still on the plateau, see? And, and so you can stay there a long, long time, many, many years. You can stay there. Charles Cheney, who used to be the vice president of the Home Mission Board before it became the North American Mission Board, used to say the key at that point is to start something new, anything new, a new vision, new leadership, a new church plant, a new ministry. Um, do something new because newness uh, vitalizes a congregation. It Keep gives them crushed. it gives them mm -hmm. energy. It gets them excited. It rallies them around something. Yeah. You know, it helps moves the moves the vision forward. Yeah. <laughs> so that point at the at the, uh, the the plateau is the first place, the first window of opportunity for revitalization to take place. Now, I've done some research. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever ever read this book or not, but it's called On Death and Dying by uh, a, a Dr. Kubler-Ross. Catherine Kubler-Ross uh, wrote about five stages that people go through when they're facing death. And I'm pretty convinced churches go through these, too. The first stage is denial. They're told they're going to die. They've got cancer or something, and, and, and you've only got a year to live. Well, the first reaction is disbelief. Mm -hmm. That's the same in churches. When churches are told they should revitalize at the plateau, no, we're fine. You know, we just keep doing what we're doing. They almost don't even hear it. It goes in one ear and out the other. But that is one of the best opportunities they have. If they will just take it seriously, it's probably the easiest place to revitalize. Most don't take it seriously at that point. It has to get much worse. So they go into a second stage. Kubler-Ross talks about this in people's life where they get angry. The next thing is they get angry. Um, they'll get angry at God. They'll, they'll blame other, other people, other things, even the doctors. You know, you, I need a second opinion. You know, they, all of this anger yeah. comes out. That is not a good place to revitalize when a church gets angry. It will get angry at some point when the decline starts happening. All of a sudden, they're, they're saying, well, we got to get a new pastor. 
you know, yeah. and they get angry and they start looking for somebody to blame, you know, God, the pastor, the deacons, the whatever, uh, the community even, they may, not a good place. The third stage is bargaining. People, if they're dealing with death, they'll say, okay, God, I'll make a deal with you. You know, internally, they'll say this, you know, yeah. if yeah. you'll let me live six more months, or if you'll take this disease away, I'll start coming to church on a regular basis. You know, I'll be a good Christian. You know, all these kind of bargaining deals. Well, that is a window that can be used because what happens is in church life, when churches get to the bargaining stage, they're at a point where they realize, okay, I've got to be willing to change some things. We can't just keep doing it the way we've been doing it in the past. We can't just try to work harder um, because that's not making the difference. We, we're going to have to. So I'm willing to concede some things. Yeah, yeah it is a compromise yeah. stage. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. It may not be the right things they're willing to give up, but they're willing to give up some. And, and this is part of God, I think, trying to tear down the idols right. in churches' hearts because some things become more important than God in church. Right. And that's part of the reason they need to be revitalized or replanted, right? Because they've replaced their affection and their desire for God with their affection for a building or a bank account or a leadership position or you name it. You know, that, right. that's part of what God's trying to break down to get to that bargaining state. Well, that's the second window of opportunity. If they miss that window, they go into another stage in human experience. When we deal with dying, it's called depression. So we kind of give up and we, we just, we feel like there's no hope. And at that point, it's probably the church probably is not going to turn around because it, it doesn't believe it can. It's just given up. And so it has low self-esteem. It doesn't, Feel like it won't invite any visitors to come because it's embarrassed to, to have them there because there's what do we show them? You know, the life of the church is not good. It's a part of the it's a reflection of their self image. You know, mm -hmm. they don't feel good about themselves, their relationship. The final window is the replant window. Now they're all the way at the end. They're about to die. And in human experience, that's acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. We accept uh, that we are going to die. And in church life, then obviously that's the time when they're so desperate that they're willing to say, we got to do whatever it takes right. to right. let this legacy live on, this yeah. life live on. And yeah. that means replanting at that point. You really can't revitalize anymore. Uh, just way too hard. Um, but replanting can give it new life. Uh, the people have to give up control. They have to be willing to accept the fact that what they've known before is no more. Now they need to seek Jesus, do what Jesus can only do, resurrect, resurrect, you know, bring new life. So those are the windows, I think, and, and they're very real. And you can usually tell if you're a pastor, Don, what, what stage you're church life is in, mm -hmm. you know, your church congregation, which one of those stages, are they in denial? Are they in anger? Are they in bargaining? Are they in depression? Or are they finally in acceptance? And depending upon where you're at, you know, then you've got some strategies to deal with. How do you, how do you move them forward from there? Yeah. I never thought of it that way. I wrote about that on the NAM website just a month ago. 
but it, it has been a revelation for me. It just kind of came to me. My team uh, talked about the windows, and then I've been dealing with the book. And so it just kind of, God brought them all together in my head. Just kind of, it really does seem to work. Uh, I think there's a lot of a lot of merit to looking into yeah. that more detail. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, like I know, like as you're sitting there saying that, and I'm looking, because, you know, I'm, I'm still in that first, you know, we're in that first cycle, you know, of years that Mark talks about. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I can see where, yeah, okay. So we're at this stage right now and we're getting healthy, but I know, I, I would say we're, we're almost like plateauing right now, yeah. but we have stuff in the pipeline that we're planning to, to begin next year that we're right. hoping and and it feels like it like there's an excitement you know we're, right. we're starting a, a thursday night service to reach a portion of our well, church to start something new thing right yeah. you know, and that adds the vitality the energy the excitement the, the rallying of the troops you know that's really a good thing because everything i talked about just a minute ago is on the downside of the mountain yeah. You know, you're, you're coming down the bell curve now. You've, you've moved off the plateau and you're starting to decline. And the further you go down, uh, two things, uh, the more rapid you begin to move. Um, and the second thing is that uh, the harder it is to turn it around. Mm -hmm. yeah. it's, it, the situation is more grave the further down you go. Yeah. Yeah. So now, third question, which actually is a good segue from this, from what you're talking about is, um, you know, what about the pastors out there who feel like they're failing? Like the fact that they have to admit that they've taken the church as far as it can go, uh, they, they have that natural feel like they're failing as a pastor. You know, what would well, you I say think all them? of us feel that way sometimes. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I would echo the words of Brian Croft and some others that I work with on a regular basis that, that remind us never to make, uh, you know, life-changing decisions on Monday. <laughs> because often <laughs> we feel right. that way on Monday morning, right? After Sunday, mm -hmm. it's been a discouraging day in a lot of ways. A conversation we've had with somebody in the church or uh, the lack of people that showed up or whatever's happened may make us feel like, uh, you know, we're failing. Um, listen, I, I, I think... I think part of this is all about perspective. Um, listen, I felt that way many times too, but you've got to back off and think about this more in terms of eternal perspective and, and uh, in terms of what God's doing. My favorite reminder to church planters, uh, well, not church planters, church replanters would be even better, would be uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It's the very last verse in that great chapter on resurrection we talk about. And, Paul recites all of the witnesses of the resurrection at the very beginning, and he talks about the, the facts of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, you know, and all these people that saw it. Then he goes into the significance of the application, what resurrection means, both for Jesus and for us. And then he comes to the end, and in verse 58, he says, therefore, and we all know what that means. Whenever there's therefore, we need to know what it's there for, right? So it is the application for you and me today, and it is, Therefore, he says, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work in him is not in vain. Now, that's the reminder right there. Um, first of all, to be steadfast and immovable, positive side, negative side. Okay. In other words, persevere, hang in there. Don't quit when you feel that way. That's the wrong time to quit. 
you, you don't make good decisions when you're discouraged, depressed, right. despondent, right. and feel like you're a failure. Don't do it. Hang in there. Mm-hmm. Okay? Always excelling in the work of the Lord. What he means by that, I believe, is always do your best. You know, when I was growing up, my dad, I'd bring home my report card, and I'd show it to my dad. And my dad would look at it, and it did not matter what the letter grades were. He would look at me and say, did you do your best? That's what I think when God looks at us and said, did you do your best? We need to be able to say, yes, Lord, I've mm-hmm. done my best. Yeah. Now, everything else is cultural. Everything else that, that we measure as the success of, of uh, our ministry is cultural. It's Americanized in our country. It's cultural in the 21st century. It, what God's looking for is faithfulness from us. Right. He's looking for us to do our best with what he's given us. One talent, two talents, five yeah. talents. It doesn't matter. Do your best. Have yeah. you done your best? If, Pastor, you can say you've done your best, then you have no reason to hang your head. Because the very next statement says, knowing that your work is not in vain. And what that means is that nothing you do is without merit and without value and without worth in the kingdom of God. Only eternity will show you how much you did in each of those moments with each of those experiences. And do not measure your success by what you can only see with your eyes. You have to see with faith, with the eyes of faith to recognize that God's doing something that is eternal in value and in measure. It is not something that is temporal and can be seen. In fact, even when my wife goes out into the garden and plants things, there are months before many of them will come out of the ground. But they are working and they are doing things even when they're under the ground. I just don't have any visible, observable evidence that it is at work. We've got to trust God with that in that process and believe him. Take him at his word when he says, knowing your work is not in vain. It's never in vain, folks. It's never in vain. So don't don't feel like a failure. If you're faithful to God, if you're doing your best, you are not a failure. You don't. You preach to the congregation that you have when you look out at them. You don't preach to the congregation that you wish you had. Yeah, yeah, that's a good. You one. know, yeah. it's a good reminder. And uh, I'm also thinking like. The other thing is, a pastor is going to be his own worst critic. Of course, you know. And of course, we all are. I mean, I can uh, like I'll even I'll even give a personal thing like, and Natalie can back me up on this. Like two three weeks ago, I felt like I crashed on a sermon, mm. and you know it was like one of those things where I had seen somebody get up mm. and walk out, and I was like. Okay, you know, as a visitor, and I didn't know the story that was going on, and then I found out they didn't even leave because of anything I said. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, like I'm, I'm sitting there, sitting at the table because we have coffee and conversation afterwards, and I'm just like, you know, I crashed, I burned, and like three people came up and were like, you know, you really spoke to me, you know, I was having yeah. a tough week, and what you said out there really put it in perspective, and. So we might think like, you know, nothing we're doing, it works. But again, and it goes with the quote you just did, Natalie, um, you know, it's the it's the church we have, you know, and that's the thing. We're 
we're uh, shepherding that flock. And, and well, I'm the under shepherd. <laughs> um, she's doing that because at the men's discipleship this morning uh that was one of the things one of the guys said was um he appreciates how i call how, call myself the under shepherd yeah. even though he's heard pa- his his pastors in the past call themselves shepherds yeah, yeah. but you know you're you're shepherding the flock still and you know um that's the thing we're supposed to do and so yeah like you were saying if we're doing if we're giving a hundred and ten percent in there we shouldn't feel like a failure. It's we're ta- we're taking, if we feel like we're a failure, we're taking our cues from the wrong things. We're either right. uh, we're we're either worried about Susie's reaction to us or George's uh, rude comment back to us, or we're worried about um, the numbers that show up on you know an uh, attendance or mm-hmm. something other than what God's word has said and our walk with Him. Right. We need to get our eyes back where they need to be on Jesus right. instead of all these winds and waves that are always tossed about yeah. around us and let him take care of settling the dust and deal with all the rest. You know, just faithful. be faithful. Yeah. Just be faithful. And we're doing it for That's right. right. Exactly. And, and like, I, I think of this too, that we, we often look at like what this pastor's got and that pastor's got mm-hmm. and, uh, I'm reminded of an old, um, I don't know whether to call it a play, but something I saw once at a church where the person was carrying a backpack and it was supposed to be all their all their troubles that they were supposed to leave at the feet of Christ. And Christ shows up and he's talking to him. And the guy's like, well, if I only had what Bill had. And Jesus tells him, look in Bill's bag. And he looks in Bill's bag and he realizes Bill's life isn't as rosy as he thinks. And then he's like, well, well, if I had John's life. And Jesus says, look at John's life. And he looks at John's life and he sees, again, it's not as rosy. And he goes, well, you know what? I'm, I, I think I'll just keep this bag with me. And he starts walking away and Jesus is like, no, leave your bag right here. And that's what we often forget. We can look and see what pastors have, but we don't know what's going on behind the scenes and the struggles that they're going through. And so Jesus gives us our church for this time and season. And so those struggles, he's already equipped us to do. And we you know, can the just go to him. About this kind of comparison thing that the pastors often get into uh, when uh, leaders meet. Uh, talked to by Jesus, you know, over the uh, the fish fry, yep. you know, in uh, John chapter 21. And uh, he says, tend my lambs and all. It, it, Peter's reaction is, well, what about John? You know, I want to compare myself to John. I want John to have to do this, or I want to, to see how you're going to deal with it. He says, you don't worry about John. You just follow me. Mm-hmm. And he's just reminding us, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. It's so easy to be distracted by others around us thinking they're getting it better than us or, or God's dealing with them differently. Somehow the implication is that it's not fair or it's not just the way we're being treated. But God perfectly knows what he's doing with you and with you and with me. It's not going to be the same because we don't all need the same thing. But he knows what we need. And he will take care of us as we move to the next step. Yeah. So, yeah. We have to trust him with that. Amen. All right. All right. Last question. Last question. All right. What are your thoughts on local and national networks in regards to revitalization outside the denominations? And do you think we will see some local? 
Um, well, I think that's more a personal opinion question, of course. Uh, I think, you know, I think they can be very valuable, but here's the deal on that uh, for me. I uh, Here's the value part. The value part is local. I think uh, local is always better because it's contextual. In other words, it understands your setting better mm -hmm. than, and having lived in New England, having now lived in South Carolina, having lived in Maryland, California, other places all over the country, um, context is very different. Very yeah. different. So what we say that that we are doing here, don't take it as a recipe or a formula to apply in your setting if you're in another part of the country. I'm not sure that'll work. You have to understand your context. You have to understand your community. And a local network will help you with that because they are a part of that region, that community in some ways, and they understand the nuances of the culture and uh, the way people think that is different and the historical experiences that still come to play on some of the import of uh, why we do what we do or how we do it. So I think that part's important. And here's what I don't like. I don't like them becoming consumeristic. Right. I think we right. feed consumerism in America in the church. And I think way too many of our people that come to church are consumers. They're looking for goods and services from us, just like they do at the mall. Yeah. And that's, we can't feed that. We can't continue to feed that. And I'm afraid that some networks, all they try to do is sell us a product or a program or, and that, that worries me because um, that's not going to be the solution, a, a canned box approach. You're going to have to be able to contextualize it. And I hope you can do that. But if that's, if that's really what they're driving you toward, then I'd be a little cautious of that. So, uh, you know, I have some mixed feelings, obviously, about that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's some value in it. But I do think you need to find a network. I do think I think that's valuable to have other guys. We have guys that are together in what we call cohorts. Um, Pastor Don's one of them in one of our cohorts. And they can number from 3 to 12 that I work with in different parts of the country and we'll get together monthly at least to be able to bounce ideas off of each other learn from each other share share with each other what's going on and pray for each other you know in the mm -hmm. in the struggles and difficulties that we're dealing with as well i think that's very valuable there are larger networks that that become uh, more than really a network in the way i think about networks and uh, they become almost uh, an institute uh, they're much more about training uh, than they are really about walking alongside you. Right. So some people need some of that, and I get that. Just uh, just know that if you're going into it, you may expect something like that to have to cost you something in terms of uh, mm -hmm. money and time. Mm -hmm. uh, it, that, it ought to be a little different in a network, I think. Now, as to our denomination, I don't know if we'll ever do regional conferencing or, or something like that up here in uh, or in I just don't know if we'll do that regionally. Um, again, I can see the value, but I, I don't know where that's headed yet. So. Being local, what a difference! Like to feel yeah, like we're not huge. alone. Yeah. And we walked in there and talking to some of the other pastors' wives. I'm like, oh my goodness, that's they're huge. going through something. Like some of the churches were even smaller than ours, and I'm like. You know, mm -hmm. I'm like, wow, I'm like, we're in this together. And, and we're we doing something like now, so you know, with NAM that's called the the hub, which is for regional, uh, rural, rural churches. Yeah. Um, that Kyle Bierman is kind of helping pull together with Andy Addis and some other guys across the country. 
but it is focused on a type of church that is found in various settings. Now, I'm, I'm not yet sure if a rural church in Vermont is going to be able to benefit from that like a rural church in Texas or Kansas or Montana. I just don't know. I, I, I think those are very different places, even though they're right. rural. Um, and so there will be some need for, for individuals to maybe learn from local folks with them about how to contextualize that into their own setting. Yeah, yeah I understand that because I know um, a couple of years ago when I went to the first replant summit that I attended in 2018, and I forget the, the pastor's name they had talking about the rural, and even he said it, like, rural can be, you know, a town of 200 or a town of 2,000 mm -hmm. or a town of 20,000. And in truth, they're all rural, mm -hmm. but a guy in a town of 200 is looking at the guy from the town of 20,000 and saying, you're not really yeah, rural. Yeah, that's what they were doing. That's exactly right. So I think, you know, again, categorizing things is a little bit difficult, but uh, local geography definitely does make a difference. And so if there's a network like Small Town Summits up yeah. here, which has been very valuable, because almost all of our places in New England are small towns. Yep. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, I mean, by the national definition, that would definitely be true. There's only two or three places in all of New England over 100,000 people. So, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. But small towns here, I talk about small town summits with my national people. They've never heard of them. Because it's not beyond this part of the country. You mm -hmm. know, it's in the Northeast, essentially. They have their own kind of thing in other places. And that's where the value of local networks comes in, right? right this right. this local network really helps us up here. Uh, but in other parts of the country, it would need to be a, a another regional network, yeah. Yeah. local network. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because I know, I know, like, I, and I've seen it. Like, I've benefited from each one on a different thing. And, I mean, like, uh, Overseed is a good um, – revitalization network which is uh -huh. multi-denominational uh -huh. and even then jim harrell who is the president and founder he knows that this guy in vermont like the guy you're talking about is going to have a different context that needs a different structure than a guy like eric malloy in boston because right. it, the revitalizations are two different things one's yeah. urban one's rural and so what works for one definitely isn't going to work for the other um but even then that guy in vermont his, his situation is more likely different than mine in my town of eight thousand nine thousand well and it's more than just solutions or ideas it's it's also colleagues that understand the setting that mm -hmm. you're in that can walk alongside you and can empathize with you and can be praying for you because they understand what you're dealing with too. Yes. And so that's the reason I don't have my cohorts with guys from New England together with guys from South Carolina. Right. I mean, right. that just took you to totally different worlds in some ways, you know, or my West Virginia guys with my Pennsylvania guys. I mean, it just, it, they need to have their own, network of cohorts colleagues they can get together can learn from each other can lean on each other and can help each other yeah and I, I'll, I'll even say this for for our for the cohort i'm in with you um the three of us in there we all know we're in uh different settings mm -hmm. but we can all understand each other and encourage one another 
and you know know that we're that there are certain things that are similar that we're going to go through but then you know always throw out the idea what do you think of this and i can think of like one time where i threw something out there and randall said well is that going to work in your context right. you know right and that's the right question mm -hmm. you know because you have to think about that um and sometimes it's just a guess but it's a it's an informed guess because you're in that context and you understand it better than anybody else in the cohort mm -hmm. in the network so it's important all right well, and i'll leave these guys with one uh, one final word i have a, right I had a kind of a credo that i picked up a long time ago that has always meant a lot to me and maybe it will help some revitalization repointing pastors it comes from saint augustine uh years ago in one of the books that i read that he wrote he he talked about the secret of a happy life. And I think a, a lot of revitalization replanters are frustrated and discouraged mm -hmm. and often feel very far from being happy. <laughs> and uh, while we on our team talk about preach, pray, uh, love, and stay, you know, as part of the, the key to that, Augustine said it this way, the, the key to a happy life is to leave the past to the mercy of God, leave the present to the love of God, and leave the future to the providence of God. So can I encourage you with those words today? If you're worried about something in the past, let it go. Let the mercy of God just wash over that. If you're worried about something you're dealing with right now, let the love of God just envelop you. And if it has to do with the future and the what ifs of life, trust the providence of God. He'll take care of you every step of the way. All right, Dave. Thank, thank you guys for the opportunity to be with you today. Yeah, enjoyed it you. much. So, um, all right. So that's it. We hope you enjoyed uh, listening to Dave uh, and his wisdom and wit and um, <laughs> all that. And uh, if you like this, uh, give us a like, leave us a comment, um, share this wherever you're listening. Uh, it helps grow this podcast, and we know that this podcast is growing. Uh, I know when we started this a few years ago, we didn't think we'd have the reach we do, and it's all because of you, and uh, we thank you for it, and uh, we're just going to keep going forward on this, so Amen. God bless, God and we'll bless. see you.